following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. All right, well, we received quite a few questions, and we're very thankful for that. Uh, so if you send in a question and we don't get to it uh, this week, uh, we've already determined that uh, next Lord's Day for Sunday School, we will do this again. Uh, because we, we want to make sure to hit as many as we can, because uh, we not only got a lot of questions, a lot of them were very good questions, and we, we want to make sure to give time to them. So uh, we are going to uh, jump right in, <clears throat> and the first question uh, we have is, can you please address polygamy in the Old Testament? Why it was tolerated amongst the people and of God, but zero tolerance uh, today. So I don't assume the one asking this is hoping to get an answer where he can have more than one wife, but uh, it is a common question uh, related to uh, the Old Testament. So I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Smith to uh, start us off with that one. Yeah, okay, that's a good question that, that uh, people ask often and uh, can be confusing to folks. It's something that um, a few years ago... I w- was able to address that question in quite a bit of detail in the uh, series of sermons on the life of David. So if you probably would like a more detailed answer uh, than I'll be able to give here, you could go and listen to that sermon. It's also something that we were discussing in our church history class lately uh, because we look when we, were, when we were studying church history and we were looking at various characters and sometimes you see certain behaviors in periods of church history that seem to be tolerated and and that even godly people engaged in, and you think, well, how could they have done that? And, you know, it brought up the issue of, of understanding things in, in the context of a cultural setting. And when you think about the issue of polygamy, polygamy's always been wrong. Uh, from the beginning, it was God's purpose that there be one man, one woman committed to one another for life. But there are a couple of factors that we have to consider. You know, the, something can be a sin and be a greater sin at one time than it is another. Now, that may, that may be hard for us to get our head around, but think about it. First of all, in the Old Testament period, men did not have as much light. Uh, men and women did not have as much light on the subject as we do now. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have Ephesians chapter 5. They didn't have uh, Colossians chapter 3. They didn't have uh, the, the teaching that Jesus gives on the subject of marriage. They... Uh, the, the light that they had was not as great as what we have. Now, because that's true, though polygamy was a sin, we can say it was not as great a sin as it would be if someone today was to engage in polygamy because we have much more light on that subject than they did. A second thing is that the cultural setting of that time was different than the cultural setting uh, uh, is and, and began to be. For example, it was just accepted in the general cultures around them, surrounding them, this was the norm for a man to have more than one wife, and in some ways that was even a way of protecting uh, women. You know, we have single women in our church, and, and a single woman today is able to um, function and to get to f- take care of herself and have a job and all of those things in our society today. That wouldn't have been the case in the ancient world. And uh, to be connected or married was really uh, vital to a woman's own well-being, her being cared for and provided for and so forth. So that didn't make it right, but there was that cultural 
th this kind of developed as the, as the norm. And then the third thing we have to remember is that in, in the case of kings like David, this was a, a, a means and a method of establishing uh, treaties with other countries. Uh, David had a number of wives, partly because he married women, uh, daughters of kings in regions surrounding them, by which this was a means of establishing uh, um, treaties and covenants with those lands. Now, all, none of that makes it right. And, but we have to always, and this is what happens even when you see stuff about church history and people staring, tearing down people's statues and all this kind of stuff like, how could that person have been a good man or a godly man and have done, believed what he believed at that time? And well, you have to judge people within the context of their cultural setting. You know, it's easy for, uh, for example, uh, John Calvin is often condemned because of the execution of Michael Servetus that occurred in Geneva. Uh, Michael Servetus was a heretic who had been condemned by the Roman Catholic Church as well for uh, denying the Trinity and, and promoting a false doctrine of the Trinity and of God. And he, he caused problems and havoc wherever he went. And he showed up in Geneva, even though being warned not to come there. And while he was there, he was, uh, he was eventually arrested. And uh, he was condemned by the city council to, to death if he would not repent. And... Um, John Calvin wasn't on the city council. It wasn't that the church did that, but the city council did that. But John Calvin uh, consented to it, uh, though he, he, he desired that he not be burned, that he be put to death in a more humane way. Well, you can look at that and say, oh, he was a wicked man, and we should have nothing to do with anything John Calvin ever said. But you have to understand the world in which he lived at that time. In Christianity in general, in Europe in general, there was no real concept of separation of church and state like we have today. The church had not really, in its development, as in its growing out of Roman Catholicism and into the Reformation period, had not really come to grasp that notion clearly yet. And so it was the common idea of just about every godly man that lived at that time that sins against the first table of the law were punishable by the civil authority. And so when you judge him, you have to judge him in light of the time in which he lived. And so the same thing when it comes to polygamy. But we're not to think that polygamy was okay because God did signal his disapproval of it in many ways. And it's always depicted as negative. It's all, and, and it depicts the negative effects of it when you study the, the life of Jacob and uh, you look at the negative effects of him having two wives and how that wrecked havoc in his family and his children. You see that with David. You see it with Solomon. And so the Bible always depicts it, even in the Old Testament, as something that is not good, that causes problems and is not healthy. So, so that's what I, how I'd answer that. You're not to say, we're not to believe that it was okay, that God condoned it. He didn't condone it. Uh, but we have to acknowledge is simply a fact that there was not as much light that God had given on the subject and that God tolerated it to a greater degree than that would be the case today. So that would be my answer. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> anyway, it's a good question. Yeah. You just want to add anything? I just, yep. I just want to say, I mean, I can't add, that's, that's a good point that he brought up. But thinking about from God's perspective, um, after he destroyed the world in a flood, except for Noah and his family, when Noah was um, 
offering sacrifices to the Lord there in chapter 8, verse Genesis, in Genesis, it says that the Lord had promised never to wipe out the world again. You know, people were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. They were wicked. There was nothing good in their heart, and God wiped them out. And he, and he, and he made a covenant not to do that again. And we see his grace and his passing over our sins. Even, even us here, you know, we commit adultery in our, in, our, in, our, in our hearts when we lust after a woman. Who in this room hasn't committed adultery multiple times? But God's grace is over, over all of his works, and everyone's going to be judged one day. And, and God is just, and polygamy is always wrong. Adultery is always wrong. But we just see how gracious God is throughout redemptive history. And he has prerogative to destroy the world or, or to be gracious and wait to the final judgment. <clears throat> Only uh, thing I'll add is just remembering that uh, the marital relationship was established by God at creation before the fall. And it said, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And those are singular. And uh, so we, we see that God established between a man and a woman, uh, a woman not multiple <laughs> women. Um, and so that's an important thing to remember. And also, as with everything, uh, as we read the Bible, we need to make distinctions between um, uh, what we read in narrative, for example. Uh, that's an explanation of what happens. Uh, versus what God commands in the imperatives that we see in Scripture. So just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean God commands or approves of it. It's uh, explaining to us often what has happened and often uh, very terrible things that have happened uh, as we read through the Scriptures because, as we know, the Bible is not rated PG or even PG-13 in many ways, um, often rated R, and, uh, and we, have to, uh, we have to recognize that and know it's not permitted just because it's in the scriptures. We have to understand uh, that distinction. All right, great. Uh, we'll move on. I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Dikama to start us off with this question. What is the best way to explain hell to a six-year-old? Good, good question for uh, parents in relationship to trying to treat, <clears throat> teach them and train them. And it reminded me of the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, where it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. These are the commandments of God. And talk of them when you sit down in your house, you walk in the way, and you lie down, and you rise up. The instilling of God's truth in our children is an essential part of parents. In the light of our society today, it's the lack of that that is causing all the problems in my mind and through the, um, what's going on in society. So it's an important principle. When you talk about your children, um, the passage of dealing with hell in your children is difficult, I think. Uh, there are a number of passages that have to do with hell. I think there's some 20 different times it's referred to in the scriptures. And some of them are very descriptive. Some of them are more general. And some of the ones that are descriptive, I think, can be difficult to try to impart to a six-year-old child. Uh, when the scripture talks about Matthew 13:50, they will be cast into the furnace of fire 
there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. In Mark 9, and when they go to hell where the fire will never be quenched, the worm dies not, the fire will never be quenched, it says again. Um, Jude says, suffering and vengeance of eternal fire. Well, these are hard passages to deal with with a six-year-old child, to try to explain to them. And in some ways, you wonder how much they can obtain in the understanding of what hell is like. Now, there are various passages that have to do with specifics, like we talked just referred to. There are some general passages which are not quite so strong. Um, in Matthew chapter 25, it says everlasting punishment. It's a little easier saying hell. Second uh, Thessalonians 1.9 says there shall be punishment of everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Recognizing some of the action, the activity of separation from this life and the realities of life. Well, in my mind, I answer the question, this is the, the reason I went through this. How do we say something like this to a six-year-old child? Well, the first thing I think that should be done is you need to pray. You ask for wisdom. How do, can you say something that the child is going to discern? The next thing I think is you understand what a child, a six-year-old, can understand. There are certain things we teach our children, and some of them are later on we teach them certain principles and certain things of life. And so there's a limitation, I think, in some of the depths of what hell, the seriousness of hell is there. By the way, I don't think that any way we ought to minimize the Word of God. When it's read, it's read, it's truth, like Pastor Nick was saying, it's the truth that's, that's important. But I'm thinking of trying to relate to the child and not disturb his whole psychic. So consider the age of the child as capability to understand. And every child is different. Those of you who have parents and have more than one child, one child you can talk straight to and he understands. Another child you just can't grasp it. He's emotional, tied. So there's various attitudes that you have to do and how to explain it to the child. And then I think in the, in the understanding of hell, it, it, it's a chance to ch teach the child the holiness of God that there's going to be a punishment for sin. And the reality of that, of course, is described in hell. It's a judgment that deserves a, a very, every sinner. And so that, that the uh, opportunity to be able to teach a child holiness of God, the rightness that's there, I think is opportunity when you, when you talk about the subject of hell. Um, another aspect of it is teaching the importance of obedience. It's the failure of obeying God's word that creates the punishment that's due, and that's relatable to the circumstances of life. You obey your parents, you obey your instructors. You, those are principles that are coming in the whole category, in my mind, concerning punishment or the lack or the re reality of punishment. And then lastly, you had an opportunity to preach the gospel. The answer to hell and judgment and punishment is the gospel, to be able to present to them there's forgiveness of sins, on the confession and repentance, repentance that we have when we relate to sin, and we trust in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for the forgiveness of our sins. And so there's opportunities, I think, that are there that um, are tremendous when you talk about a subject of how, I talk, how do you talk to your child about hell. Those are my comments on that. Yeah, yeah I just uh, wanted to say, add a couple things. Um, I do think, as Christians, we should always think of the Bible. I've always tried to think of it this way, even whether it's in public preaching or dealing with my children. 
that I don't need to be more fastidious than God himself is and how he communicates in the Bible. And that, um, now that that's, it doesn't mean that I, I don't need to try to uh, accommodate, you know, the, the ability of a child to understand certain things, but I don't need to be afraid of, of, you know, hiding things from my children that God has said. If God said it, they need to know it, and uh, because it's God's word, and and that's true with any subject, you know. I, you know, I, and that that's a guide for me and for us, even as pastors in preaching. You know, there can be the temptation. Well, I don't know if the congregation will be able to handle this, so I'm going to skip this. Well, if God's revealed it, He wants us to know about it. If He's revealed that, He wants our children to know about it. And I remember when we were. We were young and we were raising our children. We, one thing I got my hands on was a book called Token for Children. And it was, uh, one book was written by a Puritan from a man in England. One side of it was written by a man from New England. The two books had been brought together into one book. And what these were were accounts that had been recorded of the conversions of children. Uh, and some of those children that had been converted at very early ages who died in their youth. And it's very, and it was very evident as you read them that one of the things that the Lord used to awaken these children to their need of a Savior was the consciousness of uh, eternal punishment in hell. Now that's not going to save them. They have to be given faith by, uh, to believe the gospel. But uh, so I don't think we should withhold the knowledge of hell from our children. And uh, I do think that. As just exactly what Pastor Deacon was saying. You have to know know every child. There, there's one. You may have one child who's very, very sensitive. And if all you do, and if you're talking about hell, it, could, it may drive them to to despair. And uh, the, some children need the gospel. Need need more grace and more of the gospel. Some children need to hear a little bit more about hell. You know, and you gotta you gotta. I, I had one child that really needed to hear about hell. <laughs> I, I had uh, others that really they, not that they didn't need to hear about hell but they needed to be encouraged because they tended to be uh, hyper fearful and uh, so so that is important but I, I would just say to all of you you know thankfully we have the Bible and we know that God's wiser than we are and if God said something he, that he intends for us to read and for us to teach to our children then we don't need to second-guess God and say, well, God, you shouldn't have put that in there. That's not good for children. But he knows what's best, and we trust his word. And, and, uh, and with all the qualifications taken into account that Pastor Decoma has given to us, we, we shouldn't be afraid to teach the Bible, everything in the Bible to our children, including hell. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Uh, a good resource uh, for parents, um, the Baptist Catechism addresses this issue um, and if you go and get the, um, you can find it online, baptistcatechism.org, but on there, uh, Benjamin Badome, he was an 18th century uh, particular Baptist, he provides a, an exposition of the Baptist Catechism, and he has several questions related to this. And catechesis is one of the best ways to teach our children um, to help them to understand uh, various doctrines of Scripture, what's most important, and this one, uh, particularly uh, question 42 on on hell and what it is. And so 
uh, Benjamin Bedome goes through several questions related to this to, to help uh, understand in a very succinct way uh, what the Bible teaches on hell and uh, what the ramifications of that are. And uh, I just want to emphasize again what Pastor Dikema said. It's a great opportunity to talk mm. to our children mm. about the gospel, ultimately. That this, is, this is the result of our sin. This is what we all deserve. And yet, God has made a way in the Lord Jesus Christ. So take advantage of that. And uh, don't, don't neglect that teaching as, as difficult as it can be. All right, next question. Uh, I'll start us off with this one. Can you give some advice on how to choose what books to read? Yeah, read the book of the month, obviously. Uh, What would be the most important categories? Also, please give some tips on retaining as much as possible. And if you had to pick five books beside the Bible that any Christian would benefit from, which ones would they be? Great question. Uh, My first first thing to say, I uh, often will... um, assigned to students um, a book called How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. And Mortimer Adler um, is known for compiling what we have called the great books of the Western world. And it's 52 volumes of the greatest works of Western civilization. And uh, many of the works that we go through in the classes I teach for RBS. But uh, Adler um, wrote this to give helpful hints and tips on how to read in order to do exactly what this question asks, how to uh, remember what you've read, how to retain it, how to uh, highlight it, how to make reference to it. Um, so as, as easy as it sounds, just pick up a book and read it. Um, <clears throat> most of you probably remember from school, there was at least a time when you would do that, and then after you were done reading, you thought, I have no idea what I just read. So uh, how, how do we go back and work through that? And a few things, uh, it's, it's going to be a little bit different for everyone. I know for me, it works well. I always read with a, uh, a pencil in one hand and the book in the other. And I uh, have a little uh, six-inch drafting ruler. And when I find something to underline, I, I do it that way. And at the end of every chapter, I try to write at the end of the chapter a one-sentence summary of what I just read, and then as I go back through, I can, um, I can read those summaries, and then when I'm done reading the book, I have a document on my uh, computer. Every book I read, I write a one-paragraph summary of that book, so I can always go back and reference that if I want to remember uh, what was there. Uh, sometimes if there's really striking quotes that I want to remember uh, or be able to reference quickly, I'll go to the front pages of the book and write those down. Um, I don't use a highlighter, but I use little symbols and uh, make comments in the side of my book. Um, so I'm, I write in all my books a lot. Uh, I think that's good and important. Um, they're your books, so use them that way. But... Um, Please don't dog-ear the pages. What a terrible thing to do to a book is to fold the pages. But, but write in them. Make notes. Make use of it. And as you go back through it, um, you can look at those, those notes then and, uh, and find that useful. Um, I've even known some who, after they finish reading, they'll go back all their underlines, all of their notes. Uh, they'll make a document and, and just put all of those in there so they have a quick reference uh, to that. If you use an e-reader, that, it will do it for you. I know the Amazon 
Kindle. After you do all your highlights, you can get a document printout of everything that you highlighted. So uh, very helpful there. So those are ways that I use to, uh, to retain what I've read. I think the practice of summarizing, it, it goes very quickly. It's a very easy thing to do. Uh, but that's a really helpful way to, uh, to remember what you've read. And just a note on, <clears throat> on reading, I hear often from Christians just this idea, well, I don't have enough time to read, or I very rarely get to read. Um, but, you know, if you, th- if you think about it, every, every Christian can find an hour in a day to read. And uh, by that, I'm, I mean, if you read 15 minutes in the morning, if you read 15 minutes at lunchtime, if you read 30 minutes in the evening, uh, then you will, uh, you will get an hour in every day. And uh, at the average pace of a reader uh, that, and the average size of a book, that means on average you'll be able to read about one book per week. Uh, so you could read 52 books a year or so, maybe a, a few less or a few more, um, but it's, it's very possible and I want to encourage everyone to, to try and do that a bit more, to pick up and read. Um, in terms of categories of reading, I always try to, uh, to have several different kinds of categories of books going myself. Um, something related to Christian living, so more practical theology uh, related to some aspect of the Christian life. Uh, something historical or biographical Um, always encouraging and helpful and convicting um, and uh, and that's always great and I like to do those uh, with my family and our family worship a lot of times we'll be reading something like that Um, something theological either systematic or biblical theology uh, whatever topic of theology I want to study more of um, to to work through that or a larger work that maybe goes through several uh, different areas. Um, for myself, uh, in terms of just understanding more about uh, man and his way of thinking, I always read something maybe sociological, so some kind of sociological, political issue um, to, to be thinking through those things and trying to understand them from a Christian perspective. Um, of, and I'll read stuff from all over um, all over the spectrum of ideas. Um, personally, I always try to have some kind of classical work going, whether it's ancient philosophy or more modern philosophy or literature um, for my own benefit and uh, to give me a better understanding of, uh, of Western civilization and the ideas that have shaped the world that we live in. And, uh, and always, uh, always want to have some kind of fiction work going to continue to uh, influence my imagination, creativity, um, and to give me an opportunity to enter into the world of the writer and, um, and to think uh, differently. And then usually I always have something I'm working on related to one of my hobbies, uh, just to, uh, to help me to uh, continue to think about the things that I enjoy and uh, to not always sort of have a mindset of um, this is related to, uh, to my, my work. Quite honestly, as a pastor, sometimes we can get into, as, a, as opposed to just reading to learn and grow and enjoy, I, I, I never want my Christian reading to be, oh, I'm just doing this because this is my job. So uh, to, to vary it a bit is always helpful to me. Um, 
in terms of five uh, books uh, to read for every Christian, uh, first, uh, I would say, uh, besides the Bible, um, The Marrow of Modern Divinity by Edward Fisher. It would be at the top of my list. Uh, second, uh, in order to help with that, would be uh, The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, third, I would say The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification um, uh, by Walter Marshall. Uh, fourth, I would say The Pilgrim's Progress uh, by John Bunyan. And then fifth, and I'm so thankful it just came out with the banner. It's only been on PDF for many, many years, but an ark, it's called An Ark for All God's Noah's. And uh, I've been meaning to ask the guys in the bookstore to make sure we get some copies of that. But we'll probably make that a book of the month this, this year. So, um, so be looking forward to that. I'll add, I'll add one to the end, and that is um, my favorite book of all time, other than the Bible, is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. I think everyone should read that, and it gives you good insight into uh, man and his, uh, his nature and understanding of the world around him, and again, a, a sort of escape from the modern world to help you, uh, to help you explore uh, new ideas. So those are mine. You guys want to add any books or ideas? I was just going to mention the, the ARC, uh, the book you mentioned is by Thomas Brooks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas Brooks, yeah. sorry. Yeah, so... Uh, only thing I would say is about the, the being over, being intimidated by reading. A lot of people f- say I can't read. Uh, you know, uh, one of the illustrations I've used sometimes, probably with some of you before, is if you if you just thought about it in terms of a little bit of reading. If you if you read ten pages for four days a week, so you took three days where you didn't read at all. And you, all, and you only did that for 40 weeks out of the year. So there's three months you didn't read it all. So four days, 10 pages for 40 weeks is 800 pages you will have read by the end of the year. So if you think of it in small ways and plug away at it, you'll be surprised at how much you can read. But what we tend to do is we look at a big book and we say, oh man, I could never read that. Well, yeah, you're not gonna sit down and read it tomorrow. But if you just read 10 pages, Four days a week, you know, you're going to get through that book. And and also, uh, I think as Christians, we should we should think about not only you know there's 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 books that are good books, but there's also books that are like have stood the test of time, and that have been greatly blessed and used. And you know, little paperback books are coming out all the time, and they can be very very useful. And sometimes they're they're written at a level that's easier to understand. But don't neglect opportunities that may come to read some of the real classic works of Christian history and uh, some of the great Puritan works and even, you know, some pick up the city of God by Augustine and, and read it. Say, well, man, I could never read that. Well, it's a little at a time and uh, you'll be surprised. And, uh, and, you know, the Puritans, I know a lot of people say, you know, I can't, several of the books that Pastor Nick recommended are were Puritan works and I know a lot of people struggle with reading them but if you start reading them you'll start picking it up and it'll be you'll you'll be able to adjust to the way they tend to communicate and 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 say things it's like when you win, when you read Pilgrim's Progress 
You know, when Pilgrim's Progress was written, it was more in the common language of the way the everyday person talked at that time. And uh, that was one of the, the things that, that made it attractive to people to read it because Bunyan wrote that way. But now when we read it, it's kind of quaint and antiquated, some of the language that he uses. But it doesn't take too long to, for your mind to begin to adapt to that and to get used to that and to understand uh, what's being said. So just don't be, don't, don't be intimidated. Jump in there and, and start reading. Yeah. Anything you guys... Okay. <laughs> Nothing. All right. My my students often say that I assign too much reading. <laughs> but if they didn't wait until the last minute to read their assignments, <laughs> they wouldn't think it was too much reading. So break it down a little bit each day and you'll be just fine. All right. Next question. We'll start with Pastor Faris. Uh, what principles can we keep in mind when considering which issues we keep primary, secondary, etc.? I interact with many people from different denominations. I would love to be better equipped to know whether a belief interrupts or disrupts one's testimony. Well, when I first read the question, I, I thought, you know, they asked for principles that should be operating in our mind as we interact. I, I thought of... Um, the Apostle John says that, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and Jesus was full of grace and truth. And then in Proverbs chapter 3, it says that we're to uh, put, put those in our heart, grace and truth or mercy and truth, and that if we do that, that we'll have favor with God and with man. And as you think about those two things, if you have one without the other, you destroy the one that you're trying to promote. So if you have love and grace and mercy without truth, it really is ineffective. And if you have truth without grace and mercy and love, you, you're, you're just a cold person that people aren't going to want to listen to. And Jesus is perfect. And it says that he was full of grace and truth. So when we come to people and we're thinking about they're of a different denomination and we want to have fellowship with them, we can revel in those things that we have in common and enjoy that unity and if there's opportunity to talk about issues then then we can take those opportunities with wisdom always remembering to come with grace and truth so if you have that relationship with another person that's of a different denomination i would say that the the confession is a good place to go to see the priority of primary to secondary if you look at the first 10 chapters of our confession it deals with the supremacy of God's word, its inerrancy, its sufficiency, its authority. It deals with who God is, who man is. It deals with justification, adoption. So those kind of things would be primary. Uh, the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of the scriptures. And, and most Christians that are truly born again of, of different denominations have a lot of unity there. And then secondary would be other issues. Um, maybe uh, the role of the Holy Spirit is up there, and then you kind of work your way down to other things, whether it's baptism or eschatology and so forth. But always remembering that you come with grace and mercy as you bring the truth, and to deal with people the way God has dealt with you. Hmm. All of us, you know, all of us weren't 1689ers, you know, the day we got saved. 
I was charismatic, I was Arminian. Slowly, a couple of years later, people, I talked to people, people full of mercy and grace that would bring the truth to me in love and um, gave me good literature. Um, A.W. Pink's The Sovereignty of God, J.C. Ryle's Holiness, Pilgrim's Progress, as you mentioned. So to, to, um, we, sometimes we think to be a soldier for Jesus, I gotta bring the truth. And we, we, can, we can lose sight of, of the context of what God would have us to do, which is to bring that truth with mercy and with grace. And as Pastor D said earlier, to always pray when we have opportunities to share that God would give us um, help to bring the truth with grace. So, Amen. Yeah. I, um, there, several years ago, uh, Al Mohler wrote a tremendous article I've found helpful through the years. It was called A Call for Theological Triage and Christian Maturity, I think, something along those lines. It's worth looking up, but uh, he, he actually breaks it down into three uh, tiers. So the first tier being, as Pastor Faris mentioned, uh, those essential doctrines of the Christian faith, Trinity, uh, uh, the divinity of Christ, um, the Godhead of God, all of these really important doctrines that you have to believe if you are a Christian. A second tier being things that uh, we differ on and are important, but that may be dis distinctions that um, we hold to um, that would perhaps keep us in different churches or different denominations. So issues related to things like baptism, um, the nature of the supper, um, ecclesiology, matters of, of the church and how it functions and its leadership structure. And then third tier issues, things that we may differ on but shouldn't keep us in different churches or denominations, things like eschatology, our understanding of the end times those kinds of issues. So uh, I really encourage you to find that article online. Very helpful, uh, very good distinctions, at least in my mind. It's, it's really helped me to make those um, breakdowns. Um, related to second tier doctrinal issues, uh, years ago I wrote an article uh, called uh, Fences Make Good Neighbors. And, um, and the reality is that, uh, you know, we, we can love our neighbor and, and be very thankful for them and uh, be very joyful that we have the neighbors we have, uh, but also be thankful that we have some fences to, uh, to establish the boundaries between us and our neighbor. Um, and, and sometimes we need to think that way in terms of other churches and denominations, that uh, we may have these differences, and I can understand that they're my brothers and sisters, love them well, uh, affirm them as brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet, uh, we, we, seeing through the glass dimly, understand that there are going to be differences from time to time, and some of those differences are enough that, uh, that we may need to, to worship uh, in different congregations, uh, and yet, uh, not to the extent that we're calling each other heretics or casting one another out of the kingdom of God. And, uh, and so those boundaries uh, that are established uh, can be very helpful, and, uh, and we should recognize that and not see that as a, a great hindrance to fellowship, uh, but rather something that helps us to, to worship God in spirit and in truth and uh, also gives us some, 
some good things to talk about and to sharpen one another over and uh, don't, don't shy away from having those conversations with brothers and sisters who, who differ, but don't let them also be uh, matters to, uh, to turn against each other on. And Reformed Baptists are very, very good at fighting each other on the most minor of issues and then never talking to each other again. We've seen it all throughout our history. It's, it's insane. Uh, it's ridiculous, and there's no reason for it. Um, so we need to, as Pastor Faris said, very importantly, to be patient with one another and realize just because you wake up in the morning and have some new understanding that you realize uh, has always been true, um, you didn't learn it overnight, and so you shouldn't expect everyone else to do the same, and maybe some never will. And that's, that's you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're trusting in the same Christ and uh, delighting in the same gospel. So let's keep that central and then work through these issues as we grow and mature as, our, as Christians. I just want to mention one thing about maybe seven, maybe seven years ago, eight years ago, I was asked to actually speak on this subject at a pastor's conference. And uh, I did two sermons here on this subject before I did them at the pastor's conference. So... I think they're titled Christian Unity. It's two sermons, and um, so that's a resource. You could listen to that, and it takes up some of these very questions about how we relate to other Christians that are not, uh, that we're not in total doctrinal agreement with. So I think we, I think we should have them on sermon audio. Yeah. Great. All right, well, that's our time. We, like I said, we will jump back into these questions next week. Uh, as you can tell, there are a lot of really good questions, and hopefully uh, this time is helpful for everyone. Um, so you can keep sending questions. No promise we'll get to them next week. We still have quite a few, uh, but I do uh, hold on to them for the next time we do this uh, next quarter as well. So um, glad, glad you're sending them in. You can keep them coming. So i ask uh, Pastor Deacon to close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God which instructs us and teaches us. We thank you that we can learn. We thank you for the opportunity to have answers to questions that come to our own minds. We pray that the discussion that we've had this morning would be helpful, edifying, and bring glory to you. We thank you, Father, that you have such a concern for us that you present men who can teach and preach the word of God. We ask now that your blessing be upon our service to follow. Again, that we would rightly approach you with a heart full of praise and worship and love. Enable us to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.